Hello and welcome to the October edition of Data Monitor's podcast series. Um, given that infectious disease was about four months ago, we've decided to discuss a uh, an infectious disease topic this week, and I've chosen something that I know a fair bit about, uh, which is HIV treatment and prep. Specifically, we'll talk about future pipeline strategies for the three major players in the HIV market: Gilead, uh, who is a market leader. Thief Healthcare is in second place, and Merck, who is more of a minor player up until now. Uh, most of this podcast is going to focus on the long-acting treatments, uh, which have been heralded as the future of HIV. Uh, joining me this week, I have Sharda Millington, an analyst who covers infectious disease at our sister solution, Pharma Projects. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining, Sharda. Uh, so I'll go ahead and set the scene for our ordinance for how the HIV treatment field is shaping up. Okay, so there's basically three main players, Gilead, um, Vive um, and Merck. There was also Johnson & Johnson, but they don't really have anything in the pipeline at the moment, so we're not going to talk too much about them. So Gilead controls the bulk of the market share, um, with the company reporting that they estimate about three and four patients are currently on the Gilead product, uh, whether that be Victavi, Descovi, um, or Truvada. So Gilead's uh, flagship product is Victavi. Um, Victavi is the market leader. It generated almost, uh, actually more, more than $7 billion uh, in 2020 and sales are expected to reach about 10 billion in the next couple of years. Um, in addition to Victavi, Gilead also had strong growth with Descovi, um, a lot of that coming from PrEP actually. Um, and more recently, uh, one of Gilead's main products is Lenacapavir, uh, which is a long-acting agent um, that it's filing for in the US and the EU. So it's expected to gain approval in the first half of 2022. Uh, next, we have Vive Healthcare. Uh, so this is a joint venture between GSK, Pfizer, and Shingoni. I always struggle with that name. Um, so for Vive Healthcare, uh, their kind of flagship product was Triomec. Um, but Triomec has basically been losing out, and it's mainly been losing out to Victavi, and it's also expected to lose out further because of generic competition coming in in 2025 in the US and 2026 in the EU. So, Vive are basically looking to replace um, Victavi, and in their kind of tweet, uh, in the summer investors call, um, R&D head Dr. Kimberly Smith outlined uh, some of the company's strategy and how they're going to aim uh, to achieve this mid single digit uh, compound annual growth rate over the next five years. So what we are basically hoping is that they're able to transition patients from oral drugs to their long-acting injectable uh, cabinuva. Uh, and so cabinuva-based uh, therapies are basically going to be at the center of the company's uh, HIV products going forward. So to quote Dr. Kimberly Smith, Dolotegravir has been the anchor for Vives regimens over the past 10 years. Cabotegravir will be the anchor for the next 10 years, and it is the future of long-acting regimens. And lastly, we have Merck. Um, so Merck had 
uh, isocentris, um, which has basically been falling out of treatment algorithms. And to replace it, they've got Islatrir, which is a um, first-in-class drug. Um, so Islatrir is an oral drug, and it's going to be developed as a long-acting oral. So long-acting injectables seem to be the cornerstone for future development of both Gilead's and Beeb's products. Would you be able to outline the need for long-acting injectables and what pipeline agents are coming through? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the big problems in HIV treatment has been poor adherence. Uh, so a lot of patients basically struggle taking single tablet regimens every single day. Um, so some of this is due to the anxiety of taking the pill. Um, and, you know, taking it every day can be quite a high pill burden, so sometimes patients forget. But also there's a lot of stigma around taking um, pills of HIV. So a lot of the times patients don't want to take these daily orals because it's a reminder of the fact that they have HIV and they don't want to be reminded of this on a daily basis. So um, one of the things these long-acting agents do is they obviously increase adherence and increasing adherence is really important um, because uh, low adherence leads to lower viral suppression and this opens the door for resistance generation. The idea is basically that you improve adherence and you get higher efficacy. Um, so in the pipeline, there's basically three long-acting agents, um, Cabernuva, which is Vives uh, agent, uh, Gilead has Lenacapavir and Merck has Slatravir. So I'll talk quickly about Cabernuva, just because Cabernuva is the most advanced. Um, so it's these first and only long-acting injectable. It's expected to gain a fair amount of uptake, having uh, gained approval in 2021 in the US. Uh, so at the moment, Cabernet is once a once-monthly dose. Uh, so this is obviously far beyond um, daily orals. Uh, it involves two injections, one of cabotegvir and one of rivivoprene. or struggle with that name too. Um, however, Viv is basically hoping to change that to a two-monthly dosing, which should happen. And through a collaboration with Holozyme, uh, they're aiming to increase the dosing to three to six months. Um, so the approval was based off some really impressive data. Um, they compared it to a bunch of different drugs in the HIV space. Uh, probably the most notable was comparison with Trimec. So Cabernet was um, really good for patients switching uh, who are already virologically suppressed. Then there's Lenacapavir. So this is Gilead's first-in-class GP120 inhibitor. Uh, so it's a novel mechanism action, and it inhibits both the assembly and disassembly of the capsid. Uh, it has a really attractive six-month subcutaneous dosing. And at the moment, it has a major advantage of it basically just being an add-on or uh, daily antiretroviral therapies. Um, so it's basically just being used for heavily treatment experienced patients at the moment. Well, as it's going to be used for heavily treatment experienced patients when it gains approval in 2022. Um, so it's quite restrictive in what's going to be used for. Gilead's also looking to um, use it for treatment naive patients, but the 
fact that you also need to have a background uh, antiretroviral therapy um, seems unlikely that it's going to gain uptake. Okay, lastly we have Merck. Uh, so Merck firstly has Islatchvir MK8507 and it also has a combination with Nenacapavir. So the MK8507 combination combines uh, Islatchvir, which is a novel first-in-class drug, um, and this basically gives it once weekly or dosing. So that will be a notable improvement over the current once daily therapy. Um, but uh, results haven't, haven't, phase three results haven't uh, developed yet, uh, with top line results expected in about mid 2022. There's also a very interesting combination of Zlatchvin and Akapavir, uh, which Merck and Gilead announced in March uh, this year. So this is basically the biggest deal in HRV history. Um, it's combining both Merck and Gilead's kind of new flagship products, um, Izatvir and Anacapavir. Um, so the deal is expected to basically produce a long-acting oral uh, as well as a long-acting injectable, combining the two. And this is basically how Gilead and Merck are going to catch up to Cabernuva. Great, thank you. Um, lots to dive into. So my first question is on Cabernuva, as it's the only marketed long-acting agent available right now. What do you see its commercial potential being? Cabernuva has an obvious advantage of being once monthly. It's soon to be a two, uh, every two months. Um, so that's obviously far better dosing than daily orals. Uh, it's also an entity, so it has the advantage of that drug class. Uh, but there's a couple of disadvantages for Cabernuva. One of them being a tree drug regimen. Traditionally, um, they've been using free drug regimens and there's a kind of concern that there's a um, lower barrier to resistance with that. Although Vive is adamant that it isn't, um, most recently in ID week they showed that the VARTO um, didn't have lower barriers to resistance and that was after three years of data. Um, secondly, it's combined with real piverine, um, which is associated with lower efficacy for patients with high viral loads. Now, we've done quite a lot of research into the market, uh, a lot of patient questionnaires, and they believe that there's a real interest for longer acting formulations. Um, based on our discussion with KLs, we also agree with this. There seems to be high interest, um, but at the moment, a lot of people um, who are interested, at half of them, once they know what's involved in terms of clinical visits and lab tests, a lot of them seem to be opting out. Uh, so there's definite fine-tuning in terms of getting long-acting orals um, to be market leaders. So currently Vive is projecting that about 10 to 50% of eligible patients will switch over to Cabernuva. Um, and from their patient questionnaires in Atlas and Flare, um, the response is really positive and a lot of patients are staying on long-acting injectables. But obviously with these patients, a lot of them are slightly biased towards um, long-acting agents, which is kind of why they chose to go on to trials. Um, so they obviously have like a negative opinion of oral therapies. Um, you also mentioned a Vive Hilizyme deal. Um, how will this help Vive? 
So this will actually be really quite crucial for Vive. So at the moment, their biggest threat is on the cap of it. We're just going to have a six-month dosing. Um, so once that's kind of combined with this Latvir, uh, which I guess won't happen until three, four years, which is great because that gives Vive time. Um, but the big problem is, is learning Capavir is Latvir is going to have superior dosing. So the Vive, the, the deal with Halozyme basically allows it to inject larger volumes of the drug. And if you deliver larger volumes of the drug, your dosing interval is basically extended. And Halozyme and Vive basically think that they can extend the dosing interval to about three to six months. Um, so it's not just Lanicapavir, sorry, it's not just Cabotegravir alone that will be a long acting. They're also planning on combining it into an ultra long acting with other uh, drugs in the Vive pipeline. So have they released any initial data on that at all? Because obviously increasing doses can come with safety concerns. Um, That's a good question. Um, so far, it's still quite early. Um, I think trials are not supposed to begin until next year or the year after. Um, yeah, like you say, safety will actually be definitely a factor you have to consider since higher dosing will mean um, more kind of off-target effects. I think it seems like it should be possible since lenacapavir is given at a high dose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think another thing to consider is actually whether you'll be able to um, self-administer as well because so, um, Viva also considering developing subcutaneous um, cabotegravir and it will be interesting to see whether having a high dose, uh, such a large volume of that can actually be delivered um, subcutaneously. Great um, and with Gilead's lenacapavir coming to the market in the first half of 2022 how do you expect it to influence the HIV market? With its initial approval, lenacapavir won't really have too much of an impact on the HIV space. Um, well, that's overall HIV space. This is only really going to be approved for the heavy treatment experienced patients, and they make up a minority of the population. I mean, it will definitely have a significant impact in this subgroup. Um, so at the moment, Rucobia is the main drug for heavy treatment experienced patients, and efficacy for Lenacapavir was quite a lot higher than Rucobia. And although we don't have head-to-head comparisons of the two, um, it was numerically, I think it's something like 30% higher than what was achieved with Rucobia. And how competitive will the Islatravir and Lenacapavir combination be? This particular combination seems quite formidable. Um, so like I said, both drugs are first and class drugs. Um, they're also kind of marketed, well, kind of, they've been marketed as being at the cornerstone of future development. Uh, so kind of being first and class, firstly, will give them advantage of patients um, not being resistant to them. So you then basically maximize the patient population. And a combination of the two drugs, would you'd expect it to have very high efficacy and you'd expect it to reduce viral loads uh, quite quite extensively in these patients. So they're developing it as both a long-acting oral and a long-acting injectable. Obviously, oral, com- uh, oral tends to be the, uh, 
preference for patients. Uh, and oral, actually, they're pushing through the trials a bit quicker. So the oral combination trials are expected in the second half of 2021, um, whereas the injectable combination um, isn't expected to reach the market until 2027. So we're thinking that um, trials probably won't start until late 2022, maybe 2023. Um, so if this kind of you know works, then Gilead and Merck will basically take the lead in developing long-acting orals, at least. Um, great, thank you. So we've touched on the V-Pelozyme deal. Um, what's the deal like for Gilead and Merck? Um, who makes what money? Oh, so in terms of the cost of development and commercialization, um, it's a 40-60 split. So Merck is basically paying 40% of it and Gilead 60%, so just a little bit more. Um, and in terms of like commercialization, marketing, so Merck will lead the uh, development in the oral side in the EU and the rest of the world um, and the commercialization. And Gilead will lead uh, the US um, commercialization. But on the injectable side, Gilead will lead commercialization in the EU and the rest of the world, and Merck will lead in the US, so it's basically reversed. Uh, in terms of revenues, um, they're going to split the revenues evenly up until um, certain thresholds. Uh, I think it's something like two or three billion, so those thresholds will probably basically be reached in like the first couple of years, uh, really. Uh, and then after that point, they'll be splitting it 65% to 35%, so 65% for Gilead and 35% for Merck. Great. And um, what does Vive have in the pipeline to compete with Gilead, Merck's, Lenacapavir, Zlacavir uh, combination? Yeah, so in GSK's Some Investors, Investors Day's conference, um, they outlined quite a bit about what their strategy was. Um, so they're kind of aiming to do two things, really. One is to develop a subcutaneous dosing, which allows self-administration of carbonuva. Right, and that will obviously help because uh, then people will be able to self-administer and they're hoping that will help them compete with the oral drugs that come out for long-acting. Um, another thing they're aiming to do is combining um, cabotegravir with other drugs, and that's for ultra-long dosing. So potential drugs cabotegravir might be combined with include uh, capsid inhibitor, maturation factor inhibitors, uh, broad neutralizing antibodies, which is called N6LS, uh, so that's already in development, uh, as well as potential nucleoside reverse translocation inhibitors uh, that we've are developing. Um, so the kind of timelines are by 2025 to 2027, they expect to have uh, self-administered camotegravir. Um, that will be in combination with a maturation inhibitor, uh, as well as neutralizing antibodies. Um, and then from 2028 onwards, they're hoping to have these ultra-long-acting um, camotegravir injectables, uh, combining it with capsid inhibitors, N6LS, and uh, nucleoside reverse trans translocation inhibitors. And then looking onwards, actually, recently uh, in the ID week, um, we've then basically announced what they were planning for 2030, and um, this is basically going to be based on 
a deal with Shion Nogi, who's developing a third generation uh, entity. So they only have preliminary data at the moment. Uh, it's supposed to have a high genetic barrier to resistance and um, it's supposed to be quite distinct to dolotegravir and cabotegravir in terms of its resistance profile. It's also supposed to have a really long half-life, uh, so that might support the development of an ultra-long medicine. So thinking about future developments, um, in September, Excision received FDA clearance for their IND application for a phase 1-2 trial of their in vivo CRISPR gene therapy, EBT101, for the treatment of HIV. Um, I believe this therapy uses technology that was developed and research conducted by Temple University, University of Nebraska and UC Berkeley. So this is a milestone for HIV, as if it's successful, it could provide a one-time therapy for a condition that patients currently have to undergo lifelong treatment for. Of course, you have to be very careful referring to it as a cure, but it appears Excision believe this therapy has potential as a quote-unquote functional cure, rather than simply managing infection. Okay, and uh, so that sounds really interesting. Uh, how, how would this therapy work then? So the therapy works um, using CRISPR-Cas9 and two guide RNAs targeting three sites in the HIV genome using an AAV9 vector as a delivery mechanism. With the excision of large sections of HIV proviral DNA intending to limit viral escape. Um, it's shown promise so far in preclinical studies, but it will be interesting to see how it performs in its first in human evaluation. Um, this is extremely new. I think there's one other industry player looking into this, so Exavir Therapeutics. Um, although I believe they're still in discovery stages and they use a lipid nanoparticle vector instead. Yeah, I think a cure is definitely what everyone's hoping for in HIV. And uh, I'll also, I mentioned a little bit later on about some of the kind of vaccines as well that are coming up. Um, but yeah, a cure would be fantastic. But I mean, at the moment, they still have good functional uh, treatments for, for HIV. Okay. Oh, thanks for that, Charlotte. Um, so I think that kind of rounds off our treatment section. So should we move on to PrEP, I guess? Okay. Yeah, so um, PrEP, I think this is actually a really exciting time for PrEP. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of market growth. So some of that is kind of driven by um, certain things like the WHO, for instance, setting ambitious targets for reducing HIV infections. So historically, PrEP use has always been pretty low. Um, so who's aiming to basically reduce uh, HIV infections by 75% by 2025? Uh, really ambitious. Uh, so the total number of PrEP users at the moment is about 850,000, so under a million. And that's basically just 8% of the 2025 target of 100 million PrEP users globally. Uh, so obviously we're quite far off the target, but promisingly the use of PrEP uh, grew by about 43% between 2019 and 2020. So there's huge uh, commercial potential for PrEP and there's definitely a kind of push towards people using PrEP now. Uh, more recently in the US, so I covered this uh, in our most recent uh, report on PrEP, 
is that the US um, have basically decided to cut cost sharing, which basically means that now all HIV PrEP treatment is free for patients. Um, so they don't have to pay for the drugs, they don't have to pay for uh, clinical clinic visits, they don't have to pay for lab tests. Uh, so this is a major step in terms of um, making the drugs more accessible uh, for lower income patients. Uh, so current treatment for PrEP centres around uh, Gilead's uh, daily orals. So there's two, Truvada and Descovy. And from a discussion with KLs, a major barrier to uptake of PrEP has been dosing. So these people don't currently have HIV, so then obviously having to then take this uh, every single day is quite a burden and a lot of them don't manage and adherence is very low. Also, discontinuation rates are very high uh, for these um, patients. So often what happens is patients will take it intermittently or they'll take it for a period of time and then they'll stop taking the treatment. Uh, so certain things like the COVID uh, pandemic was a major hit to PrEP and a lot of people stopped taking PrEP. Um, we estimate that something between 20 to 40 percent of users stopped taking it during that period. Uh, obviously because they were less sexually active as well. So major PrEP pipeline candidates in PrEP include uh, these, well, so it's basically the same, I guess, as, as treatment really, which is VIVS uh, bi-monthly this time for Cabria. So Vacabria is just cabotegravir, uh, the, the cabotegravir part of the injectable. Uh, so this is current forerunner, front runner, and it's, it's expected to gain approval uh, on the 24th of January 2022, uh, which is basically when the PD, uh, PDUFA date was set by the FDA. Uh, there's also Merck and Co's um, Islatvir, which is going to be developed as a once monthly oral for PrEP. Uh, so that's entered phase three trials in Q1 2021. Uh, so it's expected to reach the market in about 2025. Also expected to reach market in 2025 is Gilead's Lenin and that's been developed uh, with a six month dosing. So vocabulary is actually about three to four years ahead of other pipeline candidates uh, in the PrEP space. And it's shown really, really great data so far. Um, so it's been far superior to Truvada um, with about 66% reduction in trials of many of sex for men, transgender women and non-binary individuals. Uh, in cisgender women, it actually showed even a higher reduction by 92% in incidence of HIV. Why was there such a dramatic difference between the reduction seen between men who have sex with men, transgender women, and the study with cisgender women? How significant are these results? Um, so I was talking to Carol about this, and um, their basic thoughts were that uh, it takes a lot longer for the drugs to accumulate in a tissue of um, of cisgender women. Um, so it's, it's really important that they basically adhere to the therapy a lot more strictly. Um, so if they basically miss doses, uh, then the drug won't accumulate enough. And that means that there's much less leeway um, for them to, to um, skip doses. So given that uh, these long-acting injectables are improving adherence, well, 
they're improving adherence um, and dosing. It, it then basically means that um, the efficacy is a lot higher for women and you see this difference a lot more because adherence is so much more important for cisgender women uh, than it is for um, cisgender men or transgender women. And how high is the uptake expected to be for vocabria in the prep space? Uh, so it ranges a little bit. So based on our discussion with KLs, we expect that about one in four people are expected to uh, take up the long-acting injectable. Um, so about half of these patients, um, you know, half the patients are really interested in it. Um, some of them can be kind of put off where once they basically find out about the clinic visits, um, you know, also the intravenous administration side of it. Um, there might actually be greater interest than we thought uh, initially, because a lot of this discussion was done uh, before the summer, before the FDA announced that they were scrapping cost sharing. Um, so with you know clinic visits now being free and so on, um, there actually might be slightly higher interest than we thought. So thinking about pricing and access, will Vicabria be reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid? Um, yeah, so we think it's quite likely that they're going to be re uh, reimbursed. Um, and you know, it's important to note that for insurers, it's, 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 the goalposts have changed quite a bit for HIV PrEP. Um, they now have to uh, offer these therapies for free and they now have to basically cover all the patient costs rather than having cost sharing before. Um, so I think it's definitely going to be, well, it's almost certainly going to be reimbursed. I think the real question is, is um, how easy it will be for patients to access vocabulary. Um, so it's probably going to have to basically have prior authorization, uh, which is currently what you have with Descovy. Um, so at the moment with Descovy, physicians have to submit prior authorization and outlining that, you know, the potential benefits of Descovy outweigh um, that additional cost. Do we know anything about how much vocabulary will be priced at? The cost of vocabulary, um, I think that's, that's an interesting question. Um, at the moment, Goodyear hasn't actually said, uh, so we don't know for certain, uh, but we can actually kind of guess what, probably what it's going to be about. Um, so there's a few things to consider. One of the facts is is HIV drugs have gotten significantly cheaper with the introduction of generic Truvada. So generic Truvada is obviously priced at much lower than the branded Truvada or Descovy. Um, so it does seem like you know there's some peer pushback here as well. So they're you know trying to get patients to switch back from branded um, Descovy onto uh, generic Truvada. Um, so in terms of what we think is going to be priced at, um, there has been cost-effective analysis conducted so far, um, not by the FDA's Institute for Clinical and Economic Research, ISA, um, but there was one recently uh, outlined at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, CROI, in 2021. Um, so the study basically suggested that Cabotegra would have to be listed at only about $3,300 uh, 
uh, over generic Truvada. Um, so that obviously seems a lot lower than what we initially thought. And for it to be cost saving, it'd have to be just $2,000 above generic Truvada. Um, so it's important to note, I guess, that this is just based on the results from a cisgender men trial, a cisgender men and transgender women trial. Um, so it would be uh, higher for cisgendered women. Um, there's also an additional study in the UK which suggests something similar, which is about $4,000, so it's just slightly higher. Um, but I th we think with you know, Cabernet being priced at um, $50,000 uh, annually, um, that the cost of um, vocabulary will probably be something around 25000 which would then put it in line with what you'd expect for Descovy or Truvada. Uh, actually, Alkea was basically suggested that um, you know, they could actually charge a slight premium for, for Cabria, so you know, even as high as 20-25% above Descovy. Um, but base case, we reckon it will be priced at pretty much um, the same as Descovy and Druvada to incentivize switching. And how will the 2025 launches of Islat Revere um, and Lenin change the landscape? So 2025 is going to be a really interesting year for prep. You're going to have Islatra and Lenin Kapavir come to market. You're also going to have Descovy going off um, patent. So generic Descovy will come onto the market as well. Um, so things will really shape up. So Islatra in particular, it's a once monthly oral. Um, orals tend to be the, you know, the patient preference. Uh, so this is obviously a clear threat. Um, I mean, by this point, we, we'd expect, um, you know, vocabulary to then basically have a three to six month dosing. So it will have a higher dosing, well, significantly higher dosing frequency than Islatrovir. But because orals are preferred, we still reckon an oral monthly Islatrovir will be preferred over a six month injectable. Um, and then also in the injectable space, there's going to be competition from Lenacapavir. Uh, so, you know, Vocabria has quite a lot of pressure to, to bump up this dosing interval to six months. And uh, if it doesn't, you know, Lenacapavir could very much um, supersede it. Um, also, I think what we quite important is that they managed to develop a self-administered cabotegravir formulation. Um, and that will basically really help in terms of competing uh, with the two competitors. So you touched on generics before. What will the dynamic be like with generics here? Um, so we already have one generic, Truvada. The introduction of Descovy might add a little bit more pressure, uh, but actually I don't think it will be too much pressure, uh, well, too much additional pressure. There's definitely going to be a lot of pressure on, on, on these drugs in terms of pricing and managing to basically price themselves well enough um, that they're able to uh, gain reimbursement and that there's not too many obstacles to patient access through prior authorization. So are there other possible threats to prep, for example, vaccines? Yeah. Um, so I guess we touched on say that. Yeah. So vaccines, um, they've been in development for quite a long time. 
And obviously, uh, rather than cure, uh, another thing you could do is prevent um, HIV completely. So there's obviously been loads of interest pretty much ever since, you know, HIV hit the, the headlines of the newspapers back in the 80s. Um, but there's not been much luck. So HIV vaccines have basically continued to fail. Um, Johnson & Johnson most recently, they had the AD26 MOS4 vaccine. Uh, so they failed in sub-Saharan Africa, um, achieving 25% efficacy, which is half of what is of the threshold of 50% uh, set out by a lot of the regulatory bodies. Um, they're still going to continue in the US. Um, I mean, this is basically because there's a lot of different strains of HIV. That's also one of the problems with developing a universal vaccine is that there's a lot of different strains uh, globally. So the US have HIV B, uh, whereas Sub-Saharan Africa has HIV C. So there's also a few other HIV vaccines in development. Uh, so one of them is Moderna's two mRNA vaccines, um, both in preclinical. And there's also VAERS, um, HIV vaccine. So this is a HIV T cell vaccine, uh, which they expect to report data on from phase one trials uh, later this year. How will PrEP change over, say, a 10 year period? Yeah, so kind of over the next five years or so, um, there's going to be a bit of a shift uh, towards using um, the long acting injectables. So you know, Cabernova, um, in particular in, in HIV treatment and the Cabria prep will kind of lead the way for the next three years or so. Uh, then kind of once you hit 2025, uh, you're going to have you know a couple of different uh, long active regimens that you can choose from. And then there's probably going to be this kind of transition towards self-administered uh, long acting injectables uh, as well as long acting orals. Um, so the long acting oral will of course be Zlatravir in PrEP and it will be the Zlatravir and Kapavir combination in treatment. So there's definitely quite a bit of uh, pressure on, I guess, Viv to really catch up on the oral space here. Thanks a lot for, for joining me, Charlotte. Uh, that concludes uh, our HIV podcast for today. Um, so if you're interested in any of the kind of things that we covered today, uh, there's quite a lot of coverage in the HIV disease analysis report for treatment as well as PrEP. Uh, we're also putting out a updated forecast for HIV treatment and PrEP, which is expected in October and November. Um, sorry, October or November. Um, so please stay tuned for our next podcast which will happen sometimes towards the end of November uh, which will be focused on atopic dermatitis. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for having me. Thank you Sharda and see you next time.